Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. I want to say a special thanks to Ed Hackey for producing this show. And also remind you that we have two other podcasts. We have Biblical World, which is a podcast focused on archaeology, the Bible, and uh, historical context of Scripture. And also In Parallel, which is a new podcast uh, short series that we've run that focuses on the relationship between the Bible and contemporary poetry. So that's a different sort of experience, and I, ho- I think you'll really enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, this is Chris Tilling, who's going to be hosting an episode with David Artman on his book, Grace Saves All. Enjoy. Well, it's a pleasure today to um, welcome David Artman to OnScript. Um, we're going to be talking today about his absolutely riveting book, Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Now, David Artman is an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and he holds a Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry degrees from Bright Divinity School. Now, he's an only child, a husband, a five-string banjo player, a minister, and a Christian Universalist. Clue is in the title of the book. Putting all of this together, he says this means he is, and here I'm quoting something he wrote, he is kind of spoiled, doted upon, pretty eclectic, and can't shake the idea that God is in the business of finally saving all of God's lost and wayward children by grace. Now, after being in pastoral ministry for over 30 years, he has now shifted gears towards writing and podcasting. His first book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Grace Saves All, was published by Whipfenstock in 2020. His podcast is called Grace Saves All, and uh, for those of you who would love to follow up, it's available on iTunes, Google, and um, well, and other podcast platforms as well. And his website is davidartman.net. So you'll be able to follow up um, and find him online. In fact, in his podcast, he's had quite a few big names on there. Uh, he's interviewed such notables as, as David Bentley Hart, John Milbank, John Baer, Brad Jersak, William Paul Young, Brian Zant, Brian McLaren, and my good friend, Robin Parry. He's excited about his upcoming first interview with Pauline scholar, Douglas Campbell. I think we've heard of him on OnScript before. And yet another uncom- upcoming interview with David Bentley Hart on the Sermon on the Mount. He enjoys engaging in dialogue on what he considers to be the most important questions of our time, namely the goodness of God, the nature of grace, and the ultimate purposes of God in creation. So, David, welcome to OnScript. Well, it is my deep privilege and honor to be here and to have fun to meet you and to get to talk about these things. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and it's a bold book. Um, Though you're not a tenured professor or, or academic, your arguments are sophisticated and accessible and wide ranging. And you make a case, don't you, for the following controversial thesis. 
that Christian universalism isn't simply an option, but a necessity to adequately account for the goodness of God. Now, and, and it's worthwhile saying to everyone listening, in order to make this case, David has chapters on a number of themes. We'll be touching on these as much as possible in our chat. He's got chapters on the Bible, judgment, grace, hell, the book of Revelation, mystery and free will. And uh, then there's a couple of chapters at the end, authenticity and my story. The book also contains a foreword by um, aforementioned Brad Jersak and an afterword as well by, at least in Christian universalist circles, the, 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 the justly famous Thomas Talbot. And here we find an accessible defense, um, not to quote Jersak in his foreword of a sloppy pop universalism that fails to proclaim Christ alone or the necessity of, of a faith response, or the reality of judgment. Instead, he aims to present something that is biblically compelling and theologically orthodox. So that's the, um, the general thesis of the book. And perhaps, David, to kick us off, you could define the universalism that you want to defend in Grace Saves All. Well, I would say that the approach I take is most accurately called Christian universalism, and that's because it seeks to be distinctively Christian. I think of Christian universalism as a self-consciously Christian approach to theology, which is rooted in Scripture and which was widely present in the early centuries of the church. It affirms the absolute centrality of Jesus as the only path for the ultimate redemption of humanity, it is not a pluralistic approach, which suggests all spiritual paths are equal. So when I use the term Christian universalism, I am using it to describe God's universal parental love for all people, God's universal desire for all to be saved, God's universal covering of humanity's sin in Christ, God's universal sovereignty over human destiny, and God's universal intent to finally be all in all. Now, that was a wonderful um, definition of the universalism. So bear that in mind as we talk about the pros and the cons for this thesis and the evidence that David marshals. That's what he's going to be defending, um, not um, sloppy pop universalism, not just general religious universalism. Now, um, I, I, in your last chapter, no, sorry, is it your penultimate chapter? Yeah, your penultimate chapter, you, you, you say a little bit about your story. You, you go through what brought you to this point, writing this book, and I'd actually like to begin there. Um, so in just a few minutes, what what brought you to the point of of writing a book defending the necessity, necessity of universalism? Well, my story really is all about grace and revelation as I now see it. Maybe another way to say it is that I didn't plan any of this or see any of this in advance, so I didn't plan to do this. I didn't grow up as any kind of a Christian. However, at around age 20, I found myself surprisingly having become, become what I'll call a C.S. Lewis kind of Christian. And then at about 50, I found myself surprisingly having become a George MacDonald kind of Christian. So let me, let me fill that out a little bit. So I couldn't be a Christian growing up because it seemed to me that any God who would eternally torment me or anybody else forever was really some kind of monster. But as far as what I was told by the authoritative Christian voices that I was around at the time, 
being Christian required me to believe in a hell of eternal conscious torment because pretty much the whole point of being Christian was to be saved from going there. Later on, I was introduced to C.S. Lewis's view that hell was a place where all the doors were locked from the inside, a kind of voluntary self-imposed hell. And that gave me a new and much improved possible understanding of Christianity. Plus, at the time in my life, I was going through some turmoil, and that had raised a lot of existential questions about the meaning of life and about the ultimate end of my life, ending in death. And so in the midst of all that, I dared to reach out in faith to a good God who might be there. And when I did that, something transcendent happened. That good God responded by giving me a couple of minutes of divine presence, which I'll just say was more than persuasive. It was a revelation. And and in a way, I think the rest of my journey has been trying to make sense of that, just what that experience was. So fast forward 30 years, and I find myself still propelled by that revelation, having been in either seminary or ministry all that time. And then I find myself having become a George MacDonald kind of Christian. So C.S. Lewis considered MacDonald to be a huge influence on him, and I found myself increasingly persuaded that MacDonald's vision of God was finally where I needed to be. Because in MacDonald's view, While all the doors in hell might be locked from the inside, God would not be content for that to be the final end of the story for any of God's children. But what was really another significant turning point was one night when I was praying and confessing my spiritual weakness, I had another one of these God moments. And this time it wasn't exactly an overwhelming presence, but I did feel God close to me in in that moment. And this time it was more of a message. In my prayer, I'd raised the concern to God over what might happen to me if my life really caved in and I completely unraveled. And the message I received in my own way from God, as far as I could tell, was this. David, this isn't about you having me. This is about me having you. Now, in the past, I wouldn't have been so forthcoming about my touchy-feely personal revelatory moments. But now I've come to see that it is exactly these kinds of personal revelatory moments which have driven me to think and then to see things in different ways. So you might say that through all of this, by the grace of God, I was found. And I have come to believe that what happened to me by grace will ultimately happen to everyone by grace. And so my book is an attempt to give an account of myself. So that's the basic story. So now should you want me to go on and say a little bit about how I came to writing a book that makes such a pointed case for Christian universalism? Yeah, I would, yeah. The why the necessity. Okay. Well, it happened this way. Uh, When I first conceived of this book, my purpose mainly was just to increase awareness of and to make a case for this, what I call the inclusive Christian universalist approach. It really bothered me that people felt they couldn't believe in Jesus because that meant they also had to believe in some kind of hell of eternal torment or eternal death and separation. However, through the process of further investigation, it became increasingly clear to me that something much more was at stake. The core conviction I reached was that what I call the inclusive Christian universalist approach is not just one approach to Christian theology. It is the only approach to Christian theology which can successfully defend the goodness of an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and therein lies its necessity. 
I came to believe that it is not possible to successfully defend the goodness of an all-knowing and all-powerful God unless the salvation this all-knowing and all-powerful God achieves is not also all-inclusive in scope. If God knows the end from the beginning, then whether directly or indirectly, the ultimate end of creation becomes the final revelation of the character of God. To put it another way, if God really is light in whom there is no darkness at all, then how can there be any residual darkness in a creation God designs from beginning to end? That would mean that any residual darkness would not just be something that happened to take place, but something which tells us that there really is some darkness in God's very being. And the more I thought about all of these things, the more untenable it became to me that God could even possibly be defeated in God's good purposes in creation. And so it became evident to me that if I, as a, if I as a Christian am proposing belief in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God, that would require me to clearly affirm an unreserved Christian universalism, what Thomas Talbot refers to as a necessary universalism in which, given the nature of God's love, wisdom, and power, it is logically impossible that his grace should fail to reconcile all sinners to himself. And David Bentley Hart puts it even, even more strongly, asserting that, if Christianity taken as a whole is indeed an entirely coherent and credible system of belief, then the universalist understanding of its message is the only one possible. And when I reached this strong conclusion, I ultimately felt that it would be disingenuous for me to hide my true convictions for fear that they are too bold. Better, I thought, to just honestly put forward what I came to see. I didn't set out to write a provocative book. I set out to write a book giving an explanation of myself. But as my argument developed, it just kept becoming more and more pointed, you might say. Well, okay, well let's talk about grace, because in your introduction, um, you say that salvation by grace can be understood in three basic ways. As transactional, as exclusive, and as inclusive. Um, and these become important words in, in the book, and, and you come back to them. Perhaps you could just walk us through those options. Right. Well, I needed some terminology to, to be able to talk about this. And so, the, you know, these are these are terms as I use them. I guess people might understand these other terms differently, but this is how I use them in the book. I give the term transactional to the first approach to grace because the way it works is it sees salvation as being essentially a kind of a two-part process which takes place between God and people. There's God's part, grace, and then there's the human part, that which is beyond grace, in that it is not guaranteed by grace. So if people do enough of their part, then the result is salvation. If not, then salvation is lost. Even though everybody gets grace, grace by itself, in this understanding, does not guarantee salvation. There's a part of salvation which is finally left up to each person, and God's grace doesn't ensure the accomplishment of this remaining part. So, at least to me, it seems like a transaction, ultimately. God puts God's part on the table. You put your part on the table. If it adds up, you get into heaven. If it doesn't add up, you go to hell forever. So in the transactional approach, grace does go to all, but grace alone doesn't actually save you or anyone for that matter. Okay, so that's the, that's the first one. Should I say anything more about that, or do you want to you go on? Your, your account there of a transactional approach struck me as um, similar to what I would call a contractual account. Yes. But I'd love to hear you talk about more now about the exclusive account. Okay, now I gave it the exclusive approach because it's not, it's, it's not transactional, 
but it also doesn't go to everyone. It's exclusive because it sees salvation as being exclusively for some and not for others. In this approach, those whom God chooses to save are, you know, called the elect, and salvation is exclusively for them. God excludes all the rest of humanity from even the possibility of salvation. So in the exclusive approach, salvation is not something humans achieve with God. It's something God achieves with humans. Salvation is not a two-part process. It's a one-part process in that God's part assures that everything necessary for the other part of salvation will finally come to pass. So no transaction is involved. Sinners who are understood to be dead in sin don't do anything to recommend themselves to God. God makes sure that for the elect, salvation is always initiated, sustained, and completed. God keeps working with the elect until they are able to do everything necessary for salvation. The elect are the only ones saved, and their salvation is accomplished, therefore, by grace alone. In the exclusive approach, grace alone actually saves, but since saving grace doesn't go to all, everyone is not saved. So that's, you know, you might call that a Calvinist approach. Some people call that an Augustinian it's based in kind of some ideas from Augustine. That's super. So you've um, you've covered there quite a lot of ground um, trying to keep up with the argument here. So we've looked at transactional and exclusive, but you also outline a third uh, way of understanding salvation by grace that you call inclusive. Um, you name drop Tom Wright, I think, into this um, category, if I remember rightly. Uh, as, as as sort of associated with this with this approach anyway, but maybe you could just you know walk us through what you mean by inclusive. Well, I named I named drop Tom Wright in the in in the book in the uh, transactional approach because what what he he infers is that it's possible for somebody to descend to the point of being an ex-human that nobody even parents even their own parents would any any longer have sympathy for. So in that way, it would be possible for that person to receive the grace of God, but that, that but still for them to be poss- possible for them to descend into sort of a non-human, post-human uh, form. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, um, on to the inclusive approach. Well, the inclusive, I call the inclusive or Christian universalist approach. Um, this is uh, the approach to how grace saves because it sees salvation as being neither transactional nor exclusive. This approach is non-transactional because salvation is based completely on God's prior choice to initiate and to guarantee that all things necessary for salvation will finally come to pass. It's non-exclusive in that no one is excluded from being one of the persons God intends to save. Being included in salvation is something that's for everyone, no exceptions. The inclusive approach agrees with the transactional approach about grace going to all, and it agrees with the exclusive approach about grace alone actually being able to save. Therefore, in the inclusive approach, everyone is eventually saved by grace alone. So those are the the three ways that I broke down in, in the big picture, I think, the way that grace has been understood within the history of the Christian tradition. So... Hopefully all of that's going to help us in our discussion as we as we work through the book and turning to your your chapter entitled the Bible. Um, you know, and I can imagine as well, many will just think and we're, we're going to be coming back to this kind of concern, I think, throughout our chat. But many will listen to your argument and your claims and think, well, hang on a minute. What about the Bible? <laughs> and you, you outline um five points in in this chapter because in a sense you come back to the bible throughout right but this is this is a chapter where you where you outline five points that really 
get into the details of what an inclusive approach looks like. And, and you've got, it's a five point inclusive uh, Christianity. Um, yeah, so you've got uh, one, God is a loving parent to all. Two, God sincerely wants to save all. Three, God in Christ covers the sin of all. Fourth, God is sovereign over all. Fifth, God will be all in all. And you defend each of these propositions essentially by listing and elaborating on um, some important proof texts um, under each heading. Why did you begin the book this way? And what were you hoping to refute with these points? Well, the, the main thing that I wanted to do was that I didn't want to just um, uh, criticize what I considered to be an inferior theological approach. I didn't want to just deconstruct. I wanted to construct. But I had to give some scriptural evidence for my point of view. But just as soon as I did that, people are going to say, oh, we're just lifting, list, listing a bunch of proof text. So I'm sort of damned if I do and damned if I don't. If I don't give scriptural evidence, okay, well, that's bad. If I do give scriptural evidence, well, you're just giving proof text. So actually in a footnote to that section, I, I, I do say some may observe that one might will prove anything from the Bible by drawing upon certain proof text passages. It is true that biblical interpretation is more complicated than simply trotting out a few scriptures and pronouncing that the Bible says. And then I add to that, that over the course of the book, I hope to show that the inclusive approach is grounded in, le in a legitimate overall reading of the Bible, that this reading fits best with the character of God revealed in Christ, and also that it provides the only narrative arc which satisfactorily fits within, within the doctrine of an all-good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. So I felt like what I had to do was, that, was start somewhere and to start succinctly. And I was inspired that Calvinism does a good job of succinctly stating its uh, five points. And so I thought, well, what, what if I was to uh, what if I was to state my five points for my picture of God? And so um, I really thought about this. I wanted each of the sentences to end with the word all. And so God is a loving parent to all. God sincerely wants to save all. God in Christ covers the sin of all. God is sovereign over all. And God will be all in all. And what I'll just say is, People have been impressed that I've been able to provide scriptures, that, that I've even been able to provide strong scripture arguments for all of these points, especially the fifth one. God will be all in all because that's not a point that ever even gets discussed in most church settings because it's ruled out from the beginning. In other words, if I'm in a church that says God will not be all in all, then why would I even talk about God being all in all? So, so. So it was just it's just been eye opening for people to say, huh, well, I didn't even I didn't even know some of those scriptures. Well, the reason you don't know some of those scriptures is because you're not looking at the Bible through that lens. So let me just show you some of these scriptures. And my point there is just to get somebody to say not to say, OK, you win, you proved it. But for somebody to at least say, huh, <laughs> he does seem to have some scriptures that he's able to provide. Maybe I want to go along a little further and see how he works out some of the other implications of this. Super, super. Now, it's um, it was quite a meaty chapter in many ways. So it's um, it was uh, coming out of that. 
there, you know, after reading the, the chapter on the Bible, um, I wasn't expecting necessarily as much sustained exegetical work throughout. And a lot of the, the Christian universalists I've read in the past tend to as well focus more on philosophical arguments. Not all of them, of course. Um, but um, but you didn't. And you jumped into a chapter um, on um, judgment. And I thought this was a really constructive, um, an important chapter in, in the book. And what you do is you, you don't you, you make a biblical case for restorative judgment. Now, can you unpack that and give us a sample of your exegesis of, for example, Ezekiel 16 or of Jesus's parable of the unforgiving servant um, in order to show what you're trying to argue in that chapter? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't just want to do a book and say, well, you know, this doctrine of hell doesn't make any sense. What I wanted to do was to first put forward a compelling vision of a God in whom there is light and no darkness at all. And then in the light of that, to ask, can we find a picture of judgment which fits in with that general picture, um, with that picture of God? And so, Usually when, you know, when I talk to people about something about my ideas, they'll say the question is, well, what about judgment? I mean, yeah, you, you've, you know, God will be all in all, but what about the judgment part? And, and I like to say, well, why don't we look at uh, my favorite passage of scripture, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. And in, invariably, that's not one they've ever heard of before. And it's one they've never heard of before because it never came up in any of the theological systems they were allowed to even think about. And the reason it didn't come up is because Lamentations 3, 31 to 33 reads, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. And when I would share that passage with people, they would just kind of look at me like blankly. And, you know, they would say, well, where is that? And I would say, well, it's in the Old Testament. They say, well, that's Old Testament. And I would say, still in the Bible. And the Old Testament, we may think of it as the Old Testament, but these were the scriptures that Jesus in the early church read as scriptures. And that's where they found Jesus. I'm pretty sure that Jesus knew these words. So what I'm trying to do is find a picture of judgment that's consistent with this biblical passage. And I want to see if I can, if I can do that. So then what I do, for instance, as I say, you know, really interesting passage is Ezekiel 16, um, Ezekiel chapter 16 and Ezekiel 16, 53, we find Ezekiel declaring God's eventual restoration of Sodom. Now, Sodom, really? I mean, Sodom is like the worst, the worst case scenario in the whole Bible. But Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, God makes this hopeful declaration. I will restore the, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and Jerusalem's fortunes along with them. So what's been going on here is that Ezekiel, who lived about 600 years before Christ, he is really... Uh, giving this prophecy about how bad Jerusalem is. Essentially, his message to Jerusalem was, Jerusalem, you have been really horrible. You've been so awful. You make Sodom look good by comparison. So that was a pretty, you know, that was a pretty bracing blow to Jerusalem to say that. But then according to Ezekiel, and, and according to Ezekiel, God destroyed Sodom because 
She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. So according to Ezekiel, God destroyed Sodom as its due punishment. And this is found in Genesis 19, which describes how burning sulfur fell from heaven on Sodom, destroying everything, leaving only a smoking ruin. And according to the New Testament in Jude 1.7, Sodom serves as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Yet Ezekiel, as part of his hopeful prophecy of the eventual restoration of Jerusalem, makes the stunning prophecy that God would restore the fortunes of even Sodom. So the lesson that I take from this is that it's possible for God to restore that which has been completely consumed in God's eternal judgment fire. And so it seems to me that here we have a perfect picture of God's restorative judgment. Sodom was thought to be the most sinful city of all. Its total destruction was carried out by burning sulfur and eternal fire. Yet God says through Ezekiel, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom. What was there to restore? Sodom was a smoking wasteland burned with eternal fire. This helps us to see how God's eternal fire can be used for the purpose of restoration. The eternal fire of God is not a fire which necessarily burns forever, because clearly Sodom did not burn forever. The eternal fire of God is the fire of God's holy presence, which finally burns away everything which is not holy. In the case of Sodom, this meant taking Sodom back to a clean slate, but this didn't mean God was done with Sodom. God's judgment of Sodom was part of God's ultimate, ultimate restorative plan for the eventual restoration of Sodom. So, that's a lot. Do you want me to connect that now with uh, Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant? Well, I mean, you no, know, actually, you've given us a lot to think about there, and I don't want to steal everything from the book, but I, I do recommend that those who who get the book have a have a have a read of this chapter and and how he deals with um, Jesus's parables. I just found it very interesting there how you threaded together um, Genesis, Ezekiel, and Jude, um, bringing in Jude into that, and that's um, yeah, uh, very very interesting. Now it's. Um, of course, there are going to be some, right, who, uh, setting aside for a moment those who would defend um, the infernalist position, as um, David Bentley Hart puts it, or eternal conscious torment, um, th there are annihilationists who will say, look, okay, you've got an account there of, of judgment that is restorative, but in Scripture... Isn't it also true that destruction metaphors are foregrounded, you know, objects of wrath that are made for destruction, Romans 9, that that suggests that God's judgment might be about destruction and annihilation um, rather than re uh, restoration? What do you say to that? Okay, let me let me kind of run up to that because I want to talk a little bit about this. When we get into the New Testament, we, we come... Fairly quickly, we come into Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about um, about judgment, and he in in the in the middle of the fifth chapter of Matthew, he says, "Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." Now, what's significant about that is that within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about Gehenna and been warning about that. He's been giving, he's been having some hell talk, I'll call it. And in the middle of that, he gives us a picture of justice, which makes us think of a kind of prison where if it comes to it, you don't get out until you pay the last penny. 
And then I just note that this has an interesting kind of resonance to the parable of the unforgiving servant, because in that parable, the unforgiving servant comes, um, it comes after Jesus has been teaching his disciples to forgive not just seven times, but 77 times, a number which suggests an infinitely perfect forgiveness. And then Jesus tells this parable featuring the wicked servant who refuses to forgive a small debt owed to him right after having been forgiven an enormous debt owed to the king. When the king finds out about the wicked servant's unwillingness to forgive the small debt, the king sentences him to be punished until he paid back all that he know, all that he owed. And what I notice about this is the similarity between the parable of the wicked servant and Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25 through 26. In Matthew 25 to 26, Jesus warns that those who end up facing the judge, because they refuse to settle, will be put in prison until they pay the last penny. So in both Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and his parable of the unforgiving servant, I see a theme. The penalty is severe, but it eventually comes to an end. In neither case is the penalty final banishment. Okay, now this then leads me to the issue that you bring up. What about these annihilationist, uh, annihilationist texts? What do I do? What do I do with those? Okay, and what I would say is, is that the annihilationist perspective is actually kind of the most obvious initial impression you get when you look at the judgment passages in their original context and in the original languages. So I completely understand why people might get that uh, point of view. And that's the way I saw it for many years. In 1996, I wrote a Doctor of Ministry paper defending the annihilation position as the best way to understand the judgment passages in the New Testament. But then I began to question myself on that because I came to see that in the New Testament, it is possible for something to be destroyed or annihilated, if you will, and to still be in existence. For instance, in the in in the three parables of Luke 15, one of them, the shepherd goes searching until he finds the lost sheep. In the Greek of the New Testament, the form of the verb apolumai, meaning destroyed or cut off, is used to, d- to describe the lost state of the sheep. However, when the sheep is found, it's no longer destroyed. This is important to understand in Jesus' parables in Luke 15 about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Because in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are all described with the form of the word apolumai, that same word which is associated with destruction elsewhere in the New Testament. The lost sheep was destroyed when it was lost and then undestroyed when it was found. The same went for the lost coin and the lost son. And the situation of the lost son was even more extreme than that of the sheep and the coin, because the lost son was not only thought of as being lost, but also as of being dead. Because when the lost son came back home, the father understood him to be more than just found. He had been dead, and now he was alive again. Therefore, the state of lostness described by Apollumi can imply even death. And But then I would argue, or I came to see, that even the lostness and deadness of Apollumi is not irreversible for the God for whom all things are possible. And so, I agree that the New Testament talks a lot and very seriously about the state of destruction to which sin leads. I just came to see that God is the one who is able to restore even that which has been destroyed through the ravages of sin. Absolutely fascinating. Now, there's um, an article that's just been published, by the way. This is really for for listeners. I was just reading it this weekend, actually. It's really very interesting resonance with this conversation, um, penned by John Cronin and Eric Wrighton. Um, entitled Annihilation or Salvation, a philosophical case, and it is more of a philosophical case, but they're they're not uh, naive when it comes to scripture, but a philosophical case for preferring universalism to annihilationism, published in Religious Studies Journal um, 
2022. So that's a it's a, a follow up from their book. I don't know if you've come across that one, God's Final Victory. It's yeah. a hard that's a hard one to read. I will say it's you know you have to have your philosophical grounding in order to work your way through that. But yeah, yeah. but it's an but, important. Um, yeah, that's I think they re they would resonate with your um, um, conclusions there anyway um, as they're they universalists. Um, anyway, on to the next chapter, a chapter on grace. And really, this is the heart, isn't it, of, of so much of what your book is about. And uh, your chapter on grace deals with a logical problem, really, in, in exclusivist or transactional approaches. Um, namely, one, grace alone saves. Second, grace goes to all. And third, but some won't ever be saved. And, and effectively, you're saying, well, these don't add up. Um, so perhaps you could unpack the issues in, involved here. Well, I thought that what I needed to do was try to make people aware of what they were really thinking about grace, because people use the word grace a lot, but they really don't understand what they mean by the word grace. So, for instance, I live in the middle part of the United States, very evangelical, Protestant, a lot of talk about a lot of talk about grace. And if you ask, if I, you know, just talk to the average person and I said, do you think that uh, grace, do you think salvation is by grace alone? They'll probably say, well, yeah, I think I, I think I believe that. I mean, I think I, I think we sing so songs about that at church, saved by grace alone. And um, yeah, you know, we're saved. Yeah, we're saved by grace alone. I think I, I think that's what I believe. And then I could say, well, do you think God gives grace to all? And they'll say, well, yeah, God loves everybody. God wants everybody to have, you know, grace. God's no respect for persons. Say, well, do you think some will be lost forever? And they say, well, yeah, the Bible teaches that there's a hell where people go and they're lost forever. And I say, well, okay, it's very understandable if you would think all these three things because the Christian tradition has argued all three of these positions very strenuously at different, you know, at different times in the history of the tradition. Uh, I would argue that all three of these positions are being argued strenuously today by the Christian tradition in one in one form or fashion. But the problem is you end up with a logical problem because if grace alone saves and grace goes to all, well, then I will be saved. So what you have to do is if you say that some never some will never be saved, you have to either give up grace alone saves or you have to give up that grace goes to all. And so what I wanted people to do, I, I just wanted to surface that with people. And oftentimes people are surprised when they realize that they thought they believed that salvation was by grace alone. But upon further reflection, they realize that that is, in fact, not what they believe. And so at least what I'm trying to do there is is get the question on the table. OK, we talk about this word grace, but what does it actually but what does it actually include? Yeah, this is uh, so you're deploying syllogistic logic, aren't you? In in this chapter, and and Thomas Talbot did something, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I, in, I, um, I got the idea. I got the idea from Thomas Talbot. I, I looked at what yeah. he did, and I took what he did, and I repurposed it to to really expose this uh, this question about what is included in grace. Right, right. Now you write on. I think it's page thirty five. Um, I'm quoting you, salvation by grace alone was one of the great rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. Yet in the transactional approach, salvation is not by grace alone. 
Anyone who is finally saved is only saved because they were able to add something to grace that grace did not guarantee. Um, what would you say to those Reformed theologians who would argue that faith is included in the act of grace? Grace does guarantee it, in a sense, or uh, or, or that faith is nothing more than, it's not a performance, it's, it's us coming with empty hands. Um, yeah, I mean, how would you respond to that line of reasoning? Well, just as I looked at it, it, it just seems to me that salvation by grace alone was central to the basic understanding of Reformed theology, that all people were thought to be trapped by the effects of original sin in a state of total depravity at birth. Therefore, all would be rebels until the end, unless by a gracious act of God, God instilled faith in them. But this installation of faith has nothing to do with them deserving it in any way. Put it another way, and what I think of as classic Reformed theology, everyone is born on the train headed to hell. And there's nothing you can do to get off of it, because in your depraved state, the things of God hold no interest for you. You don't even have the capacity for it. But if God has so chosen you, then God at some point will awaken you by grace and you will begin to be drawn. Faith will arise and you will persevere in the faith. So I would say that in classic Reformed theology, faith is 100 percent impossible for humans to generate on their own. God has to initiate, initiate it in them. Now, there was this objection to this in Arminian theology, and Arminian theologians want to claim their heritage goes back to the Reformation as well. And in Arminian theology, what God gives grace to all to overcome that depravity so that they can make the decision to have faith. So for them, no faith without grace, but then again, even with grace, there can possibly be no faith. And I think that causes a problem for Arminian or free will theology, because if grace only leads to the possibility of faith, then salvation is not by grace alone. At least that's how I see it. So it seems to me that Arminian or free will theology has in fact rejected salvation by grace alone. And I think that is tantamount to rejecting one of the five fundamental solas or pillars of the Protestant Reformation. People can agree with me or disagree with me on that. That's just the way it seems to me. Well, I think now's a good time. I was going to do this a little bit later on, but to, to, to move into a quick fire round, really because I want to get out of the way. You know, I, I never come well prepared to these quick fire rounds, I'll be honest. A lot of it's off the cuff. Um, but I've got a couple, just a couple of questions. And the idea is just off the top of your head. Oh, off the top of my head. <laughs> so what's your favorite Bible passage to preach on? Oh, well, you know, that Lamentations, um, that Lamentations passage. However, I will say, that I have retired from preaching. And what I do now is I have conversations with people. I say, I did the preaching part for, you know, all those years. And now I'm happy to ask questions and to be in conversations with people, but I don't really want to be, I don't want to do the lecture thing anymore. I just want to sit down and let's just talk about it. You ask me questions, we'll just talk. I am, let's just say, I'm coming down out of the pulpit and I'm just sitting with everybody now and saying, well, what do you think about it? Let's talk about it. Uh, but I just, so I just, my favorite way to do this now is just, to, is just that's why I love these podcast conversations. So that's why I love doing all of this. Says I think there's something authentic here when we're just able to engage like this. Okay. So earlier on, I was driving along and this bloke cut me off at, at a T-junction. Really annoyed me. He drove off super quick. So he didn't get to see any of my hand gestures. Um, are you seriously telling me 
that he's not staying in hell for that. <laughs> well, what I'm, well, I'm telling you that, you know, the worst person that you can possibly imagine, this is what's really, now, here's the bad part. Uh, you know, people can, I think what's offensive about Christian universalism is that everybody wants all the good people to be saved. You know, we want we, not just the good Christians, but the good Muslims, the good Buddhists, well, I don't know, the good the good, just the good people in general, you know, we don't want, we believe that God is good and there's not going to be some kind of arbitrariness in God. That is, but there's something that's deep in the core of the human existence called scapegoating. And the idea is what we do is we transfer all of our desire to judge and to vilify and to scapegoat. And we find a, we find a person. This happens in movies all the time. You know, we build through the whole movie. And what is the climax at the end of the movie? Seeing the bad guy get it. You know, so there's part of us that kind of wants the the really, we, we want to put everything on the absolute worst people. And then we want to eject them somewhere else and be done with them forever. So when I say that there is that, no, that, that's, that doesn't work, that any one of us could be any one of the worst of us. And that if you were in that guy's shoes and if you had lived his life, you might be worse off than, than he is. And to say that we're no, we're not two human families, the people that can be saved and the people who can't be saved. We're one human family and we're in all this together. And so, yes, what I think is now that every single person is a person that I am destined to be finally and fully reconciled with in eternity. And so that affects then the way that I see them, because they're a part of me. I can't, I can't be well if they're not ultimately finally well, even if they don't see that or understand that right now, that's what I believe about them. Yeah. Although you really did cut me off bad, but we won't go on with him. Um, but, but a friend of mine, um, called Lincoln, uh, you might appreciate this. Uh, he, he, he calls himself a hopeful annihilationist because he, he really hopes He's got a list, you see, of about five or six people that he really hopes will be annihilated. Um, but anyway, there's a hopeful annihilationist perspective. Well, I said, you know, I would agree with about in the script, I would in agree the, with him in, in that the part that he hates, quote, about these people will be annihilated. But that the part that he hates about these people is not the essence of who they of who they are as a child of God. I believe that there is the Imago Dei that is at the, at the core of each person. And so what you hate about somebody is not them. It's some type of, it's some type of behavior that's on top, that's grown on top of that Imago Dei. So yes, he will, that person that they hate will be annihilated. And what will be restored is the person that was always intended to be there in the first place. Well, I have to, I have to give that line of reasoning back to Lincoln. Um, next time I, I chat with him, and you can tell um, Lincoln for that. Yeah, and you can tell Lincoln that the part of of him, the part in him that desires to have that person be eternally separated from him, will be destroyed in him as well, as part yeah, of his I mean, annihilation. Ad admittedly, it's it's his humor, um, but um, but it's still valid. Your point is valid. <laughs> um, so um, now let's get back on with the book. Okay, um, your your chapter on hell, I think, is going to be of great interest to people. Um, you want to take seriously, it seemed to me, all of the biblical language rather than just prioritizing one passage over another. At least that's how it seemed to me. 
And to this end, you make the case that hell is a place of restoration. Um, could you walk us through your case? And you know, some might think, isn't that it's like it's like a sort of version of Catholic purgatory, but only not for the for those in Christ, but for everyone. Um, yeah, anyway, just walk us through your argument there. Well, I think, you know, there is a there is this idea that of purgation that you get in the in the judgment language in the Bible anyway. And when Jesus and the problem is that hell is not a word that is in in the Bible. It's not a Bible word. It's an English word, which gradually came to be associated with anything happening down there in the bad place. And then we got Dante's Inferno and a lot of medieval artwork that sort of filled in the, the visuals for that. And when the Bible was first translated into English, the word hell was often used in both the Old and New Testaments to translate a variety of Hebrew and Greek words, none of which meant the never-ending fiery torture pit hell came to represent in medieval times. And so this single use of the word hell to translate a variety of different Greek and Hebrew terms having to do with judgment led to misunderstandings. In the Old Testament, there is not even really a developed idea of an afterlife. Ancient Jews thought that after death, everyone descended to the shadowy realm of the dead they called Sheol. And however, the King James Version, completed in 1611, often translated Sheol as hell. And so it left the appearance that hell was equally present in the Old and New Testament. So to the first readers of the Bible in English, it seemed hell was a permanent fixture of the Bible, which had been present from the beginning. Now, thankfully, modern translations of the Bible have refrained from using the word hell as a simple substitute for uh, Hades or Sheol, like the NIV, for example, in 2011, so this is pretty recent, changed their translation of the rich man and Lazarus to make it clear that the rich man was not in hell. You know, that's just, we're just talking 2011. They had previously, um, as they had previously translated Hades, so now since 2011, you look at the NIV, the rich man is now in Hades and not in hell, which is what was in the text. So as a result, there's less and less hell in modern Bible translations. So in the original Greek language of the New Testament, uh, Jesus uses the word Hades and Gehenna in references to places of judgment. I said earlier that King James Bible translated both of these words with the English word hell. So first, let's look at Hades. Hades is a word with a Greek background, and it was the general equivalent of the Hebrew concept of Sheol, the general abode of the dead. So Hades isn't hell. It's more like a holding tank for the dead. And most grant that Hades didn't have to do with eternal torment. It's where Jesus refers to Gehenna in certain judgment passages. That's when it's argued that Jesus was referring to a place of eternal, unrelenting flame. Now, Gehenna is a word with a Hebrew background, literally means the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna was a valley just south of Jerusalem, which had developed a terrible reputation. In Gehenna, in the days before Jesus, desperate Jews gave up on their faith and they made fiery human sacrifices of their children in the worship of other gods. The Israelite king Josiah had the valley formally desecrated by the scattering of ashes so it could not any longer be used as a place to worship these foreign deities. And not long afterwards, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah held Gehenna up, this is important, as a valley of destruction where one day the bodies of the inhabitants of Jerusalem herself would be disposed of after being defeated in battle. Now, this is important background because when Jesus used the term Gehenna in his warnings, all of this background would have come into the mind of his hearers. They would have most naturally thought of Gehenna as the hideous place where bodies come to ruin and destruction and not as a place of eternal torment. And then even behind that, there's another level of background, because when Jesus is warning about all of this, he isn't just talking about individual people's lives. He's talking about 
a kind of disaster that is coming towards Jerusalem. So what ultimately helped me to understand Jesus' warnings about Gehenna was how they were connected to his sense of an impending national disaster for Israel. Jesus predicted an imminent disaster, which would be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. And Jesus advised people of his day not to get caught up in the leadership of what he called the corrupt generation, which was leading Israel into a violent conflict with Rome. In his Sermon on the Mount, he taught love of enemy and turning the other cheek, not violent resistance. He warned his followers not to go into Jerusalem when the Roman armies came, but rather to head for the hills. So what's interesting to me about the whole debate about the hell of eternal torment is that the justification for it really comes from a parable where Jesus doesn't even mention hell directly, and that's the parable of the sheep and goats, which we find in Matthew 25. So what I would say is, the Gehenna passages really point you more towards the direction of annihilation if you if you look at them. And so I don't even think they're really a good place for somebody to try to even argue the eternal torment position. That really comes from this key verse in the whole conversation, which I think is Matthew 25, 46. I can talk about that a little bit if you'd like me to. Um, well, I, I wanted to get on, actually, to to um, a couple of your other chapters before we run out of time. Um, but it is worthwhile saying. Um, now, um, as I was beginning a friendship with Robin Parry, at the time, it, um, it wasn't public that he was the author of the Evangelical Universalist. You know, it was under the pen name Gregory MacDonald. Uh, I remember sitting in a pub, uh, no, in a, in a restaurant with him. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but um, uh, I, I figured out he was the author of the Evangelical Universalist because of the way he was using a New Testament scholar called Andrew Perriman. And it was all about the question of hell that you've just summarized. Um, so that I, I managed, I got him. I see. <laughs> this is you. Uh, anyway, um, Moving on to this related, really, onto the chapter on on Revelation. Um, you, you know, Revelation fourteen. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. What is it about Revelation? Do you think that people misunderstand? And what do you want to say about Revelation? Just in a nutshell, in in your fifth chapter. Well, what you're really throwing at me is two problems. It's the problem of a problem scripture, you know, because what you're really saying is, hey, you've got a, you've got a problem here with the book of Revelation, don't you? You've got some problem scriptures to deal with. And what I realized is I've got problem scriptures to deal with no matter what direction I go. And that's the fun of doing theology. Because let's say, let's say I take the transactional Arminian route, and I say that— um, I have a problem there because God simul it simultaneously affirms God's desire for everyone to be saved while also asserting that it will never happen. So then my problem scriptures are, isn't God the one no one is able to withstand? Isn't the purpose of God rather than the plans of the human minds what will be established? Isn't the case that no purpose of God may be forwarded? These are all Bible passages. Isn't, the, isn't God the one who declares from the end in from the beginning? So if I go that route, I've got all kinds of scripture problems there. If I go the uh, if I take the exclusive Calvinist approach, then I say that God apparently doesn't want to save everyone. Well, then I've got loads of scriptures that seem to suggest that God does want to save everyone. So I do want to get to the book of Revelation, and I will. But <laughs> what I found out is there is no route that I can take theologically that makes me 
uh, immune from having scripture problems. So when somebody says, you know, what about this scripture problem? I'm happy to deal with it. But we, we need to recognize that you've got some scripture problems, too. So the book of Revelation. OK, so it's characterized as the ultimate book of warning, and it paints this somehow crystal clear picture of the final judgment of God in which the righteous and the wicked are permanently separated. Yet, as I think Robin Perry pointed out well in his book and Brad Jerzak pointed out in his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, in the final chapter, chapters of, of Revelation, there's this vision of the new Jerusalem whose gates are never shut. Through these gates will come the glory and honor of all the nations. Inside the city, there is the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. There are unworthy outside, unworthy folks are outside the walls of the city. An invitation goes out to come and drink the spirit and the bride, give this invitation to drink the free gift of the water of life. And so in my chapter on the on the book of Revelation, I just ask people to consider that final hopeful image in the book, which occurs after the judgment scene where people whose names are not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. And then when it comes to the lake of fire, I think it's helpful to know that when you think about fire, that God is talked about as a consuming fire throughout the Bible. So in a way, you're being tossed, uh, you're being tossed in, you know, into God when you're being tossed into that lake of fire. And um, I, I like what Charles Pridgen wrote. He was the president of the and founder of the Pittsburgh Bible Institute. He wrote, the lake of fire and brimstone signifies a fire burning with brimstone. The word brimstone or sulfur defines the character of the fire. The word theion, translated brimstone, is exactly the same word theion, which means divine. It kind of makes you think back to that, uh, to the destruction of Sodom. Uh, it's the, it's the divine fire. Sulfur was sacred to the deity among the ancient Greeks, and it was used to fumigate, to purify, and to cleanse, to concentrate for de to consecrate for deity. And for this purpose, they burned it in their incense. In Homer's Iliad, one is spoken of as a pure uh, one is spoken of as a purifying goblet with is spoken of as purifying a goblet with fire and brimstone. And the verb from theion is theiu, which means to hallow or to make divine or to dedicate to God. So. To any Greek or any trained in the Greek language, a lake of fire and brimstone would mean a lake of divine purification. I, th I think you put all these things together, and I think you also look at the book of Revelation as, as an example of apocalyptic literature, which is, which is really addressing issues that were happening in the first century. I just think you put all these things together, and it helps you to, um, I think, get a more nuanced approach to the book of Revelation and appreciate it without uh, looking at it as having some kind of final trump card in this in this conversation that can't be dealt with. Now, you're, you, we don't have time to talk about um, your chapter. You do have another chapter, Mystery and Free Will. It's a pity we don't have time where you talk a little bit about Karl Barth, but um, why it's you know, moving beyond hopeful inclusivism, that sort of thing. But um, it, just in general terms, um, to, to finish up, um, this fascinating discussion. Well, why is it that such brilliant theologians as Augustine and Aquinas fail to see the necessity of, of universalism? And how would you respond to that kind of concern? Well, Augustine, he was 345 to 430. So we had several hundred years of Christianity before he came along. As a matter of fact, that's when all the great Greek-speaking fathers did all their wonderful theology. And then Augustine comes along and he can't even read Greek. So that would be one response. <laughs> that would be one response I would make. Also, he's in an area of the world in Northern Africa 
Uh, they're depending on a Latin translation of, of the Bible, and they already had a tradition of teaching about eternal punishment from Tertullian in that part of the world. But in other parts of the Christian world at that time, there was strong sympathy towards a more gentle view. And Augustine himself admitted this in his in his Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love, he wrote, it is quite in vain then that some, indeed very many, yield to merely human feelings and deplore the notion of the eternal punishment of the damned and their interminable and perpetual misery. They do not believe that such things will be, not that they would go counter to divine scripture, but yielding to their own human feelings, they soften what seems harsh and give a milder emphasis to statements that they believe are meant more to terrify than to express the literal truth. God will not forget, they say, to show mercy, nor in his anger will he shut up mercy. So I think Augustine, you know, he's he's got his own reasons for thinking this way. He does, he's not able to read the the original Greek of the New Testament, which I think, depending on the Latin Vulgate, made his way of looking at things a little harsher. But it was his views, whether you like it or not, that became sort of ensconced in the in the tradition. So now you talk about Aquinas. Well, now we're to the 1200s. So between Augustine and Aquinas, we get the Fifth Ecumenical Council, and that's where Justinian is trying to solve the Monophysite controversy, and he thinks he can do so. Um, and one of the things he wants to do is also solve some problems in Palestine that are happening because of some controversy about origin. So he has the idea, well, we'll just condemn the name of origin. And then there's some anathemas that get passed. I don't think they were actually part of that council, but they get attached historically to the memory of that council. And that what that does is it kind of puts in cement in the Western Christian tradition that the only acceptable view is eternal conscious torment. I mean, if you even suggest annihilation, now you're in trouble. So people then moving forward have an enormous amount to lose if they even question the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Okay, so what you have is you have brilliant people working inside of a box trying to make sense out of it in the best way that they possibly can. And if your box doesn't make sense that you're in, it doesn't matter how smart you are, the, what, what you say about that box is still ultimately not going to make sense. It'll make sense to other people that are in that box with you. But I think once now we're able to have some perspective on that, we can see that there are some problems just philosophically and logically that that box does not represent a God who is good. Well, I mean that um, we've covered an awful lot of ground um, today. I think we've we've spoken about panoramic issues when it comes to understanding scripture in light of of theology, and you've given us a lot to think about. So um, many thanks um, for coming on, discussing your book, "Grace Saves All: The Necessity of Christian Universalism." Real pleasure having you on on script. Well, it's been a pleasure to visit with you. And, uh, and what this means, as I sign off, is that there is hope even for that bloke who cut me off on the Brighton Road earlier on. And on that note, I'll be um, wishing you all the very best and until the next podcast. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.